All right, how you doing? My name is Matt Barr, and you're listening to episode nine of the Looking Sideways podcast. Yep, it's my podcast where I try and uncover the most interesting stories in action sports and other related endeavours. Thank you, as ever, for listening to and or downloading the show. I hope you enjoy it. So it's episode nine, and yeah, there's been a bit of a delay between this episode and the DJ Barbecue one, which was episode eight. few reasons for that, really. Uh, firstly, I went to Portugal for the week on a surf trip with some friends. I did have a lot of grand plans to use the downtime on that trip to finish off a few podcasts, but in the end, I only got one done because the waves were really good, to be honest, and I was having too much fun not doing any work for a change. And then I did finish one, which is with Tom K. of Finisterre, but for a few reasons, I decided to hold that one back until the beginning of July. It's a great conversation, though. So uh, if you subscribe to the podcast, keep an eye out for that one. It'll be dropping in a few weeks. The good news about that, though, was that it meant I could bump this week's interviewee up the list. And the eagle-eared and eyed among you will have noticed that this is a noteworthy occasion for the Looking Sideways podcast because, yes... I have finally managed to interview somebody who isn't a man. This week's subject is the great Leslie McKenna, three times Olympic snowboarder and now the head of performance for GB Park and Pipe. I must say that of all the feedback I've received about the podcast, this has definitely been top of the list. Why haven't you interviewed any women yet? And it's a fair cop. In my defence though, and I know I say this every episode, but I'm going to say it again, I'm literally just putting this thing together in my spare time when I'm not doing my actual job, which is helping to run all conditions media. So I've obviously made it as easy as possible for myself by necessarily choosing people I knew I could easily speak to, whether it was people I was going to see at trade shows, people I was going to see when I was on trips I had planned. It's just so happened that all of them so far have been blokes. But of course, it's my intention to interview as many of the inspirational women who are part of the action sports community as I can. Coming up soon, I've hopefully got Irish surfer Eastkey Britain, I've also got World Bouldering Champion Shauna Coxie hopefully booked in over the next few weeks. But please, as ever, let me know who you think I should speak to by heading over to Facebook and adding to the thread that's pinned to the top of the Looking Sideways Facebook page. You can find the address for that on www.wearelookingsideways.com. The other thing I've had people asking me in the last couple of weeks is if it's just a snowboarding podcast. And again, I can understand why people think that because most of the guests have been snowboarders and my background is obviously heavily in the snowboarding industry but the answer is no it's an action sports podcast and the reason I used other related endeavors in the tagline was a little bit of a get out clause because as far as I'm concerned climbers mountain bikers surfers skaters wingsuit flyers they're all fair game if they've got an interesting story I've got a huge list as I keep saying but I really would like to hear who you think I should interview so you know what to do add to that list and let me know so on to Leslie McKenna as I said at the top, Leslie's a snowboarder who's a three-time Olympian and is today programme manager, I should say, of GB Park and Pipe, which is the British national team of ski and snowboard athletes who compete on the world tour with the ultimate goal of trying to qualify for the Olympics. Really though, this uh, basic description doesn't do Leslie justice. As we'll hear, she spent her career blazing trails for other people to follow, whether through a competitive riding career, as I've said, couple of times but it's worth repeating again she went to three olympic games which i think is an incredible achievement and she did it at a time especially for british athletes and for snowboarders in general when it was an extremely unfashionable thing to do and in doing so she pioneered the route that all british athletes now follow 
She was also a member of the Chunky Knit production team who put together, I think, two all-female snowboard films in the early 2000s, which at the time was another uh, trailblazing thing to do. She was also a Roxy team manager. And now through this work with GB Park and Pipe, she's uh, once again setting the agenda that, that many people are following. So I first met Leslie back in 1996. And then I spent the next season living with her in Maribel with a big group of people. And it didn't take me long to realise that here was somebody who was gloriously intent on following her own path and seeing where it would take her. And that's the thing that really comes across during my conversation with Leslie. Her career has really been all about constant forward movement. It's been about learning lessons whenever they've been available and putting these lessons into new practices that have benefited her and countless others and will continue to do so long into the future. It's a fascinating listen with an inspirational lady to sit back and get stuck into my interview with European snowboarding legend Leslie McKenna. Enjoy. So I am here in my back garden with uh, in Brighton, in not so sunny Brighton, with Leslie McKenna. Hello, Leslie. How are you? I'm very well, thank you very much. Thanks for uh, coming to see me to do the old Looking Sideways podcast. It's very nice to be in not so sunny Brighton in your garden. I think it's going to perk up a little bit. So you've just been to Slovenia, haven't you? So what were you doing there? I'm just um, actually on my way back through London Gatwick, um, which currently seems a bit like my second home, from Porto Ros, Slovenia, where I was at the FIS meetings. So there's two sets of FIS meetings. FIS is the International Ski Federation. That's actually also the Olympic-recognised governing body for snowboarding as well. So for Park and Pipe, um, I've been the team manager for GB Park and Pipe. Part of my job is to go and represent us at an international level. So twice a year I go to the the FIS, Federation International de Ski meetings. And um, this spring meeting was in Porto Rosso, Slovenia, which was beautiful. Yeah, beautiful part of the world. How was that then? Was that a laugh? <laughs> um, parts of it were a laugh. Yeah. Um, you know, the face is a massive... Um, massive structure it's a it's it's interesting for me to get involved in the governance side um i'm not gonna lie and say it was a battle of laughs but there are, are lots of people who i've known for a very long time now working in similar positions within snow sports to mine um you know people like martin chernick for example so there's definitely the opportunity to catch up with old friends and and have a laugh and and feel a lot more comfortable at those meetings than for for example five years ago yeah well i'm sure we'll we'll get we'll cover that ground um so how often are you on the road it's, it's quite a lot isn't it really um it is a lot so i'm on the road a lot but a lot less than i was as an athlete or as an, a coach so during the winter i'm away probably for one week out of every month approximately sometimes more sometimes less um, in the spring and autumn um, it's a lot of one or two day meetings a lot of them are just in the UK and a few trips out to training camps with the team so um, I'd say it's it's constant but it's it's uh, far less time if you add it all up to to be away than than um, 
it would you know it was previously yeah <laughs> so have you got a bit of um <coughs> bit of a chill time now a bit of downtime a tiny bit of downtime it, although we had uh, I'm actually lucky enough to have just been on holiday for for a week so that was definitely downtime yeah. nice little week in Beiritz thank you very much Gary Green Shields for the loan of your house um, no, nice. it, was, it was lovely it's nice to get down to to that part of the world um, but actually the season if you like for for GB Park and Pipe we're going to kick off again on the 7th of June already so um as we're we're coming up to an Olympics, there's not really a great amount of downtime. To be I, sh- I should say it's the end of May 2017, which is why I was kind of asking that question really because I know it's been a really busy winter and yeah. But I, so it never stops. That's that's the the deal. It's just on one long onward rolling winter. It, yeah, it, it's it pretty much is, and you know, part of or a massive part of my job is to make sure that we are doing the work we need to do in terms of planning and accounting for the plans that we've previously made with our major funders who are our UK sports. So a big part of what I'm going to be doing this summer is is helping to, to write the, the business plan for the next four to eight years. And that's obviously a really important bit of work. And we, we've already started brainstorming on, on that. Obviously, it's... It, it's something that grows over time but we've definitely got to get that written down and and handed in so to speak so eight years so we're in 2017 so the olympics are in february so you're already planning for 2026 yeah so the major plan will be for 2022 but that definitely includes elements that reach all the way to 2026 where are those two olympics so um it's gonna be beijing after after uh, Korea and then the the ones after Beijing have, have not been decided yet but there's a few few people have thrown their hats into the mix right wow so that's a pretty long yeah you know that's looking a long way ahead there mm-hmm. a lot of it's dependent presumably on how well everybody does next year yeah absolutely you know it's all it's all dependent on that to be honest although um the results next year would never be counted on their own. They have to be part of a, a long-term plan. You know, we basically write a business plan, and, and then we we have to have all the bits of that business plan to in place to to evidence why we think it's going to work from the both the strategic side and the operational side. So there's a lot going on behind the on snow part of what we do. Yeah, I guess words like <coughs> business plan, strategize can feel a long way from from snowboarding who are you writing these business plans for like who who are you accountable to in your role so uh, ultimately we're accountable to well first of all the first stops british ski and snowboard they're our national association if you like and then they're accountable to uk sport because they are the main funding body and um, who am i writing these plans for really um the team, the athletes, the coaches, myself, so I don't get really confused and actually know what I'm doing. And although I'm calling them business plans and and using words like strategy, really they're they're just you know getting organised and knowing what tricks we're going to learn when or help the athletes to learn and how we're going to do that and keeping track of um, the money side of things. To be honest. So how would you define your role? You mentioned earlier that you're team manager. Um, for GB Park and Pipe 
Is that your official title these so my, days? My official title is Programme Manager okay. for the GB Park and Pipe team. Is that like the Dave Brailsford? Um, so I'm not the performance director. So the, in the UK sport structure, you've got the Olympic uh, sports. So the national governing body would be like British cycling or UK athletics or British ski and snowboard. And generally they have a performance director that then works with program managers of the different um, disciplines within that sport. So for example, in athletics, you've got track and field uh, and you know, there's um, throwing and running and um, you know all the, all the other disciplines within track and field, or within that are set under British athletics, including you know the marathon, for example. And in cycling, you've got track cycling, road cycling, um, and everything else in between. So, British ski and snowboard have a performance director. That um, his name's Dan Hunt. He's only been in his post for since about November 2016 um, he oversees all the disciplines within British Ski and Snowboard so alpine skiing and cross country as well um, moguls, aerials, the cross disciplines whereas I'm only looking after park and pipe Okay, and you're the person that's responsible <coughs> with coming up with the, the plan basically for how the team's going to perform and how the riders are going to perform for park and pipe yeah exactly yeah. and i guess for setting goals and then explaining how that's going to be achieved is that yeah is that that's that's about the size of it yeah okay well i mean that's obviously um with the coaches of course yeah of course yeah i think it'd be good to dig into that a little bit later on but right now it'd be great to find out how you got there really um because you've had a very very long career in winter sports from when you were really small right I mean you know so be great to hear a little bit about that so where did you grow up? So I was very lucky to grow up in Aviemore in the Highlands of Scotland and just um, you know lucky enough to grow up with within a family and, and a circle of friends who love to do outdoor sports and that was for me outdoor sports including snow sports skiing when I was a kid just a really normal part of life and you know in the winter we'd go skiing or sledging or building snowmen or cross-country skiing if there was enough snow in the summer we'd be you know camping for the six weeks of the summer holidays and we'd always take our bikes so you know biking around everywhere is just what we did um or swimming in the lochs or the sea or out walking or hiking and playing tennis basically anything that was going a bit of water sports um so yeah just had a really really privileged upbringing in that environment and your family obviously well not obviously to everyone listening but it's something that i know i've been involved in cairngorm mountain and the, and the skiing um scene if you like up there f for a long time right so yeah when did that start so i i or from both sides of my family and um, they were both sides of, so my, my father and my mother both come from a background that that got them involved in outdoor sports and skiing in particular so my grandparents actually emigrated my grandparents on my mother's side emigrated to Canada in the late 50s they only lasted a couple of years and my mum my was pretty young at the time and they brought skis back with them from Canada and they lived in Dundee and my, my grandfather was a fine parts engineer for Timex 
and they fell in love with skiing. They were big ice skaters. So Dundee had a big ice rink and my granddad was an ice hockey player and my granny was a was loved to go skating and they were so graceful they used to ice dance all the time but from their love of ice skating and being in the outdoors lots of cycling around the place they really enjoyed skiing so they started do, going on weekends to either Glen Shee or Cairngorm and that must have been such a mission you know you're talking early 60s and drive four hour drive from Dundee up to Cairngorm camp in the snow was that, walk was, up the mountain th- this is before there yeah there's lifts. no resort right no yeah um, a rope tow they, they had up there um, have a couple of runs it was a real social endeavour so there were a group of people who went weekend skiing and they were part of that group real pioneering group um, and at this Sorry. Well, I was just going to say, because I st- came to stay with you in uh, Aviemore probably about 18 months ago, didn't I? And it's Chick, isn't it? Yeah. Chick McKenna. Chick Baxter. Chick, so sorry, Chick that's Baxter. That's on my, my mother's side. It's so my mum's dad. I met Chick and he's, how old is he now? Mm, he'll be 93. 93. Still like sharp as a pin, isn't he? You know, and yeah. like... But he had the home, he had the super eights, didn't he? Or, yeah. his, or like the, so cine, it, so the old his, cine films yeah. of, of those days, which were absolutely brilliant. His hobby was was filmmaking, and being a fine parts engineer, he is meticulous with anything he does. And his films are just unbelievable. You know, he cut and edited these th- films to music, and that is a massive endeavour for anybody who who knows anything about it. It's um very far removed from iMovie I'll put it that way and he's still got all the editing gear and he you know he showed me how to use it all once it's it's proper labour of love so he's got these amazing films that he filmed at that time even just the effort of taking the film camera up there um, and then edited into to pieces to music uh, it's it's impressive so they were doing that since the late 50s early 60s and on my dad's side he actually originally was a climber and he was part of the the club scene that grew up around Glasgow for for um walking hiking and climbing so the clubs like the Craig Do Climbing Club and they're really famous climbing club in Glencoe and he was a a young man in that environment was lucky enough, he was a chimney sweep and window cleaner by trade, lucky enough to be able to get out of Glasgow at the weekends with a great man called Jimmy Watts, who used to take a bunch of them, I think, young young guys and girls out climbing and hiking. And my dad fell in love with the outdoors that way. It ended up in Aviemore, learned to ski as a climber and um, became the first professional ski patroller on Cairngorm Mountain and then a ski instructor shortly after that and and got to know the same group of people that were were coming going weekending so my mum was part of that group and that's where my roots lie so how old were you when you first skied up there there's pictures of me on skis in my garden about a year and a half old really I'm not skiing I'm like got those plastic skis on yeah yeah I'm just standing there looking a bit confused amazing (laughs) my first memories of skiing are maybe when I was about four something like that and actually my first memory I was snow plowing um, for the, if nobody has skied, you kind of it's the way you go slowly and you you make a bit of a pizza wedge with your skis and you push your skis out and they glide across the snow and they they make a a ripple effect in the snow. Looks a little bit like 
the ripple effect you get from water on sand, but it looks like angel wings. And I, I kept making my dad stop because I, it must have been Christmas time and we must have been making a- angels or something to put on the Christmas tree. Dad, Dad, look, there's angel wings in the snow. That's my first memory of skiing. That's a nice one. <laughs> Amazing. So how often did you used to go there when you were a kid? Um, I guess because, you know, the weather... The weather was never friendly when I was a kid either up there. But as far as I can remember, I was up there every weekend. I probably wasn't. Um, and But as soon as I was maybe old enough to, to ski a little bit more independently, so, you know, eight, nine, ten years old, I definitely was up there every weekend. It, it was open and I just loved it. I I couldn't get enough of skiing. I remember I was... Um, were you, were you pretty sporty anyway? Yeah, you know, like we said, we'd every night was was a different sport club night in our house Um, and you know it was ice skating one night swimming club the next disco dancing the next um, tennis the next disco dancing haven't you got some (laughs) some uh, that that came out a little bit later Scottish championship medal in the in the closet somewhere Uh, yeah myself and and a girl called Zoe McLean who was also is also a very very good skier her her family also ski she was also in my, my ski class but we won this Scottish pairs disco dancing championships i think in 1986 or 87 or something it was a long time ago you got any pictures <laughs> yeah we've got a few we're gonna have to <laughs> dig them out get them on the website gotta see them they're pretty classic as just as an aside what i remember is chicks films are they on youtube or anything um no they're not but we could uh, i could definitely put up a few because i think it'd be really great to to show people that because I thought they were really beautiful and they're like really incredible document of that part of Scottish ski history Uh, they definitely are yeah I thought it was amazing so we should definitely do that right so disco dancing um, but skiing so at what age did you start racing so I was adamant that I wasn't going to start racing until I was about 11 or 12 so I was reasonably old compared to to these days um, I just used to like razzing about the ski mountain with my friends or my granny. My granny was great fun uh, and a bit of a adventurous spirit, shall we say. She's a bit of a troublemaker, <laughs> kind of, in a nice sort of way. But she was so much fun to go skiing with, I didn't want to go racing. But when I did give racing a try, I had it was really enjoyable. And the group of people who, the group of friends who were doing it, um, were so much fun that I got into it that way it was never because I wanted to win the race it was because it was good fun you enjoyed the, yeah. the camaraderie and the it was definitely the the group spirit thing yeah. that, that what, got me hooked what was your discipline oh back then it was a or kind of hybrid between slalom and giant slalom okay. you know, whatever whatever space they had on Cairngorm they'd stick some gates down it and, and yeah. put up the timing and and you'd have a shot and it was you know stopwatch timing so probably wasn't the most accurate and then when I got more into it I guess when I was 14 or 15 I I, I actually really wanted to to get better at ski racing so I'd got into it enough to understand the tactics behind ski racing. Um, and it's it's very, very technical. It's a very technical sport. So once you get hooked by learning those tactics and the technique, then, then you, you can get passionate about a different kind of, you know, different part of it than just the social side. Yeah. Um, so and you then, had that progressive 
methodical viewpoint on it that you you wanted to improve and you yeah. you're analytical about the way that you wanted to improve and definitely and then you become a little or I I'm like that I, I get a little bit compulsive about small things and oh, what would happen if you did this with your foot or your edges or your whatever is it equipment is it something technique you're using to use the equipment so I, I got hooked by that by the I've noticed that's the, something that all athletes have in common yeah. I think in any sport I've been lucky enough to hang out with a lot of professional athletes over the years and that attention to detail and how it affects performance on any level really you know whether it's like even if you could tweak your bindings before just a day doing laps in the park or whatever or whatever it is or if you're racing you know like yeah people seem it seems to be something that people really buy into yeah so I um I guess I was 14 15 when I started to to get into that side of things and see the bigger picture and then you start to you know there's infinite ways you can get geeky infinite ways you can get geeky about um about that side of things and then I got selected for the Scottish ski team Okay, so how old were you at this point? 16, maybe. 15, 16, something okay. like that. Um, and what did that look like? Did that mean you got funding or...? No, no, the, what, that looked like um, the best club racers in Scotland got picked for a team <clears throat> that had access to coaching in the winter over weekends and a few weeks of abroad camps. That's what that looked like. Okay. But it was all self funded apart from we did get help in the form of grants so for example the Strathby and Badenoch Sports Council that's what they were called at the time right. um, you know I definitely would never have been able to to go on those camps without people like that helping out the local businesses put in a lot of money um, I had a local shop sponsor I've had a lot of help from from local businesses and local people right from the very beginning of my career which I'm extremely grateful for well I guess uh, and again like that's a theme that's run through your whole career and that's obviously something that you're grappling with in, on a larger scale now really which again we'll, we'll get to so how long did you did you race for so I um, I left school after my hires so I was 17 when I left school and at that point I was still on the Scottish team but there was no full-time program for girls I think there was for boys um, I'm not sure if there's there was any well there wasn't much behind that decision except for there just maybe weren't enough girls and I ended up in Jackson Hole and that was obviously um, hugely influential on me as a person so the first season I ever did at 17 years old was in one of the most gnarly big mountain environments that you can find pretty different from Cairngorm very different from Cairngorm and this was in you know 91 92 it, it was you know, Jackson Hole at the time was still very much out there. Um, and I was also lucky enough to be living with the ski patrol or a guy, family who who worked on the ski patrol. So I, I got to go on bomb patrol with the Jackson Hole ski patrol whenever I wanted. So my wow. first <laughs> experience of Jackson Hole was going on bomb patrol at 6 a.m. in the morning up the mountain with Callum Mackay. Um, which again, I'm hugely grateful that I had that experience. And you know, back then the skis were very long and very narrow, and I had never skied powder before. You know, not even a version close to powder. I'd grown up in Scotland. I'd been abroad to the Alps a few times to ski gates. So being landed in Jackson Hole with a there were a lot of snow that year as so, well, um, with meters of powder snow to cope with, 
Um, I had a lot to learn, but it was so much, you know, so much fun. I'm so glad that I I got to learn to ski that way, and 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 then um, that Didn't my first season gates. wasn't somewhere yeah. else. And so I, I I was a member of the Jackson Hole Ski Club, um, which is you know tr- tr- um, has um, over the years had many many really famous action sports athletes. I think Travis Rice was even. Um, a member it's a ski and snowboard club okay. now so i do believe i'm still an honorary member wow i need to, i would need to investigate further and um, i'll come to the why i'm an honorary member in a minute but i ended up on the jackson hole ski club and trained with their local ski program and they were great as well you know but they they were typical of the kind of person that lives in jackson hole they were very adventurous so we spent a lot of time just skiing the mountain as well as bashing the gates Unfortunately, I had a big accident in in the February of that year. And they they have a or they used to have an annual downhill race, and I'd never done a downhill before. And I'd borrowed somebody's downhill skis. For for um, those who don't know what a downhill is, it's the very fast version of ski racing, where you basically go as fast as you can down very big, long, open turns, and you can get up to really high speeds, you know, you're talking 60, 70, 80 miles an hour sometimes. Um, so I'd borrowed, borrowed these massive guys' downhill skis, I think they were like 225 long, with, you know, really stiff bindings on them, and I was, wasn't very big as a 17-year-old girl. Anyway, I was hell for leather in this Jackson Hole downhill, and um, managed to to lose a ski halfway down, which was I don't know why I'm laughing. It wasn't very funny. I ended up in the trees going at very high speed, and um, went through a couple of trees. Didn't realise at the time how lucky I was not to really really hurt myself. Came out of there um, with a couple of broken ribs, which in the grand scheme of things was a very minor injury Good for result, the slam. By the sounds of it. Um, but I, you know I, I had to take a a month to six weeks off to let my my ribs heal. So. Um, didn't go home. I didn't have enough money to go home and come back again. So just hung out and and kind of healed as quickly as I could out there. Um, in the meantime, I, I got really into alternative medicine at that point and crystal healing and all sorts of other wacky stuff. So that also had a, a big impact on on me um, and the next few years of my life and my I guess my philosophy around injuries and healing. But managed to finish off my season in Jackson Hole, went and did some more races at the end of the season. I think I even went to Whistler maybe at the end of that year and came home loving skiing even more than I had before, but knowing that it was skiing and not just ski racing I loved and mountains and powder and that there was so much more out there to to discover. Does this bring us nicely to the, the switch to snowboarding then? Well, yeah, I, was, um, I spent another few years skiing um, I, I got onto the British ski team um, shortly after that. Spent a few years properly boshing a lot of gates, and and got less and less motivated actually, because you had to have such a narrow focus. It was all about the gates, and I I was passionate about you know mountains and skiing as much as gates, and at the same time. Um, I'd started to learn to snowboard back home. So when I got back home from the season, um, most of the group of people I was hanging out with in Aviemore were snowboarders and I'd started to snowboard with them. Who was in this group so then? This Just was like the, Cy the, Smith and the, people like the that. The Boardwise crew, yeah. yeah. So Cy Smith, Justin Westcott, 
Ross Dempster, um, obviously Tony Brown, definitely give a nod to him, although I didn't snowboard much with Tony, but he was definitely influential. You know, I, I knew Tony from, well, I from Chevy's. Chevy's uh, I should, definitely we should, influential. We should probably say, shouldn't we, that back then, I mean, what were we talking, 92, 93? Yeah, yeah, ni- 93, 94. Okay, so back then, UK snowboarding was definitely very sceney wasn't it and yeah. I don't mean that in an exclusive way I mean I just mean that there was people in Rosendale there was there was yeah based around slopes and whether that was a dry slope and or or a town like Aviemore and that I started snowboarding probably like 92 93 and yeah those guys were kind of already legends at that time like Simon Smith you know like Tony Brown he's he started what was the shop called um, the snowboard asylum so that, so that was what it was called, the original one in, in Aviemore. I don't think I had a the in it. Snowboard right. Asylum. Okay, I didn't even know that that was where that came from. But anyway, so so that was the group that you were that you sort of fell in with, if you like, yeah. which is pretty different from the ski race group, isn't it? Oh, extreme! You know, 180 degrees different. And I started to get a lot of um, jip off of my ski coaches, to be fair. And at the time, the ironic thing was, you know, I was the straightest person as a teenager you could ever imagine very very into to training like very very into what's really trendy these days so very into mindfulness yoga training meditation alternative medicine you know I, I was wholeheartedly in it to to be the best ski racer that I could be or the best athlete that I could be um although I was very left field so I I think ph- philosophically I probably fitted way better or definitely fitted way better with the the snowboard group of people than the alpine skiers um, and then um, really tragically the last year I was on the ski team one of my best friends on the ski team got killed in a downhill race oh, I didn't know that, who's that? So this, it was a girl called Kirstine McGibbon and Kirstine um, she was a great person you know, one of the nicest, kindest, most open minded people you could ever meet and she was definitely my rock in the ski team so when I was going being branded as a crazy hippie and you know meditating with crystals for for my half an hour a day she would defend me (laughs) or if I wanted to go snowboarding after I'd been gate training and the coaches were going nuts about it I'd she'd she'd be my defense so they really didn't like no no they they really you know when I put my soft boots on and took my snowboard out of the team van after skate training and went for a wee shred on my own and you know I was very there were no other snowboarders on the mountain wherever we were skiing gates it was very much me experimenting on my own Um, and they didn't like that that ruffled a few feathers no why didn't they like it sorry I know we're digressing a bit but I'm just interested what what was they just felt threatened by it or they just didn't understand it or I think it was a combination of a lot of things. Probably, to be fair, and in retrospect, have, you know, working with young athletes these days, I was rubbing it in their faces as hard <laughs> as I possibly could. Yeah, it doesn't <laughs> <And> surprise <laughs> me somehow. Um, you know, I was um, trying to make as big a statement as I could about the the lack of of um, versatility or inspiration within our program, and um, I probably could have done it in a lot of a uh, a smarter way but you know you're not smart when you're you're not smart that way when you're 19 20 years old um and I was having loads of fun so I didn't care um obviously didn't feel that supported by the 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 community or the the environment at the time um 
except but your for, friend so except for Kirsten. Um, and the other, you know, I had other friends on the ski team as well that maybe weren't as like-minded, but you know, the athletes definitely didn't have a problem with it. The other skiers, it was more the establishment, if you like. Um, and so, um, <laughs> so, so Kirsten and I had come back from a ski camp in the summer. This must have been '94. No, 95, summer of 95. So I'd been snowboarding a little bit the previous season. We went to Reading together, straight off of a ski camp. We bought a tent and we went to Reading and and we got we got ditched and, and you know, had to make our own way home. And, and um, I think after that, it was a bit of a, a life-changing experience. We had a great time at Reading. Um, and and I'm, I think I made some, some big decisions there that, you know, I, I had to, you know, may, maybe I was going to have to walk away from skiing, but I, I, that was unconscious, um, that, that kind of decision. Um, the October training came around. The other, another girl on the ski team got really badly hurt and that was really horrible to deal with. And then by January, the atmosphere within the team was bad. The funding had been cut. The, the coaches were playing the athletes off against one another. Um, probably not intentionally, but it it was a very good example of how a team can go really horribly wrong, of which I've I take a lot from now and, yeah, and try and avoid I'm it all sure. costs. And then Kirsten really tragically got killed in a downhill skiing accident, and the ground the world ground to a halt. It was really awful. Wow, how old were you? Um, twenty one. Okay, so it sounds like um, there was there was a few things that were all pointing towards a change yeah so um, that being obviously a huge a huge one my solace for the next few weeks was snowboarding on Cairngorm unfortunately the 96 season was a very 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 good one there was loads of snow and I just went home and went snowboarding and everybody was so supportive Um I did go back out and did a, like the Europa Cup finals and alpine skiing um, then randomly somebody crashed into me, had a massive big water um, hematoma bruise on my shin, couldn't my, put my ski boots on anymore, but could put my soft snowboard boots on. So went to the British Snowboard Championships in Marybell <laughs> and never looked back. 96, yeah, which is, where, <laughs> which is where I met you for the first time. And it, I remember it happening quite quickly because I remember suddenly hearing that like you know ski at the maribel brits in fact and i remember like oh leslie mckenna's here and she's a skier and she's did, did you win stuff i i think i might have I've won the giant parallel giant slam or yeah, something. But basi- basically I, suddenly it was like wow leslie mckenna's like now a snowboarder you know and that was like quite a funny quite a funny yeah. thing you know like, it was actually down to people like simon smith justin westcott jeremy sladen that I started competing in snowboarding. I might have not got down that path, but they were so enthusiastic about it and and maybe knew me well enough to recognise that I was an athlete. That's what I was actually really passionate about. Um, So really supported me to just jump straight out of ski racing into snowboard racing, which was easy for me to do, actually. So I I went... You had that technique, grounding... Yeah, or, or the, I didn't have the technique. Honestly, I did not have but the technique. From, I was from, winging it. But from using your I, edges, I obviously there are transferable skills. That's what yeah, I mean. Yeah, I had transferable skills, and I definitely had the tactics of of racing <laughs> around gates, so I could do right. that bit. Um, Ruthless winner, you mean? 
well, well, well a good line. It's a not good be, Let's not be around the bush, um, yeah. But then I met. I went to the board test that year, and and um, the next important thing that happened was that I met Melanie Leando, and she she also was hugely passionate about snowboarding and was up for an adventure and really wanted to to take on the Snowboard World Cup tour. And if I hadn't met Melanie and I hadn't have had a partner in crime that was, you know, up for it as I was, I don't think I would have ended up sticking with snowboard competition. We really needed to be together. So we spent the next two or three years on the Snowboard World Cup tour learning the ropes, so to speak. So you went to the Maribel... I'm just going to get the timeline right in my head, really. So Maribel Brits 96... Then you then you went to the board test and then you were on Burton, right? You got sponsored by Burton. Yeah, yeah. It was lucky enough that Burton UK hooked me up. Yeah. And then I got invited to the Burton Europe Alpine Camp. So that was with their main European race team. And the ISF still existed in this time. So I spent the 96-97 season racing on a snowboard between the ISF tour and the FACE Olympic qualifying tour. The Nagano Olympics were going to be in 98, so this was the qualifying year for the Nagano Olympics. And I was training with a French race team, a pro team, pro ISF team, um, alongside Xavier Delarue. And people like Nicola Conte and Mathieu Bozzetto and, and those guys. Well, I didn't know so that. Right in at the deep end yeah. with the, the the really good French Alpine snowboarders. Great bunch of people. Absolutely brilliant fun. They were probably the most out there snowboard people that um that I maybe I've met. Um people like Martin Fernandez and you know, they they were real visionary types. Yeah. Um Xavier I interviewed him for this podcast he spoke really fondly about those years oh it was great it, yeah. was, it really was great and and this snowboarding was developing so quickly and at the same time as racing doing the snowboard um Al- alpine snowboard competitions i was also riding i was snowboarding so riding soft boots around the mountain and you know just having a laugh learning how to ride transitions ride a bit of pipe ride yeah. a bit of jumping well this um, is when we did a season together so which so we did our season together would have been the n- next, next year 97 98 yeah but that's what i was going to say because i remember i mean it's hilarious when you think back to the <laughs> contrast between the approaches to snowboarding in that house you know you had you and like you say, that season, that was the first time I'd met anybody that did yoga, that, that meditated, that, that actively used crystals. And, and you, you were doing that. And then you had us lot who were basically getting pissed every night and classic like 20 year old snowboarders just, you know, <laughs> wanted to party and ride. Pretty funny mix, but definitely worked. And I remember, I remember really clearly that you'd go off training with the, and you'd go off competing, but then we would go riding and you would come out and get the soft boots on wouldn't you yeah. I rode so much in those seasons and I'm so so grateful that I had that chance I think there's a lot of people who nowadays who end up right on the competition tour and they don't have the chance to just go snowboarding we had a powder day on Mont Valon, which I still really remember from yeah, the, from those awesome days. Awesome powder day. Yeah, like I right. remember chasing down Scott Nixon. Yeah, trying to get to the big pockets of powder before him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, st- I still clearly remember those turns, and that's that is literally. Well, next year it's twenty years ago, isn't it? Crazy. Yeah. So then, yeah. So this is like the competitive years we're getting into, isn't it? Like you say, so where you and Melanie travelled 
what, so this was an ISF tour that you were. So, so we tell, were, ex, explain exactly. We what started you, Mal, off were doing. Um, with the intention of riding the ISF Pro Tour, um, and I did. A, I was riding the Swatch Border Crosses. They were ISF. Melanie was riding half pipe, and I was riding Alpine snowboard as well. Um, and then we were riding enough fist events to try and qualify for the Nagano Olympics, and we both just missed it. And we just. If we'd started a one season before, I'm sure we both would have made it, but we were up against it. You know, we really didn't know what we were doing. Um, but we were both quick learners, and I was helping Melanie out in terms of trying to coach her in the halfpipe, and she was helping me out in terms of trying to coach me alpine snowboarding. Neither of us really knew what we were doing, but we were both, um, you know, able to pick up enough and work together enough that we, we were a pretty effective team, actually. So we both just missed out on Nagano. But by that time, we'd, we both learned enough to think, we should give this a good go. You know, we actually really like it. We're, we've improved so much, we can actually kind of do it now. So let's keep going. Let's try again. And by that point, I wasn't so into the Alpine. I'd fallen more and more in love with riding halfpipe. And that's equally as geeky as, as any um, technical sport I would say halfpipe riding is very very technical so it kind of suited my slant that way um, Melanie rode pipe, it was actually easier if we just both did the same discipline at least and so then I didn't have to carry like four sets of snowboards around and etc that was getting a bit old although I'd enjoyed doing a bit of everything I think I'd, I was kind of getting over going round gates so I ditched the alpine boards so this is 98-99 this is like more 99 on to 2002 yeah and that that part of my life i was definitely a half pipe snowboarder um yeah well that's I, what you that's what you spent you were immersed in yeah definitely you know that that was what i really enjoyed we still rode lots of other kinds of snowboarding but i was you know definitely half pipe snowboarder was part of the roxy team and um, very very you know again really enjoyable time lots of changes going on in snowboarding lots of politics um lots of pros and cons to weigh up um, well, well correct me if i'm wrong but there was there wasn't the framework as an athlete that you have now no in terms of the uk and this is interesting i i actually talked about this a little bit with some people at the the meetings last week we were reminiscing at that time i felt a, um, I think that m myself and Melanie were a bit dislocated from the British scene. So the British scene was definitely a very core scene that definitely was anti-FIS. Um, they definitely didn't have an understanding of the political backdrop that was going on between FIS and the the old ISF that had that w at one point completely disintegrated before it was reborn into the TTR, and and really around 2000, 2001, 2002, as a snowboard rider, you didn't have an option. If you wanted to compete, you had to go and ride on the Fist Tour. Um, everybody was riding on the Fist Tour. So the, although the UK core scene saw, I think, or get the impression that they saw us as a bit of sellouts, if you like, um, we were just really doing the same as all the other halfpipe riders were at the time. Um, we don't really concern I mean, ourselves that, so that, much with that. that that's a can of worms, isn't it? I think I'm not sure this is the place to to go go down that. I mean, I think there's a cultural discussion to be had about about that, which I think we should maybe save till later on a little bit. But 
I'm more interested at this point in 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 those obstacles because yeah. I guess that was so that's an obstacle you've described. I mean, what were the, what were the other obstacles that you came up against? So at, at that time, actually, there weren't. What well, that wasn't even really an obstacle. It just meant that you know, we were we knew that we were the first people from the UK. Yeah. really following the tour. Exactly, that's what I mean. So we just got on with it, really. Um, when we got loads of help, people were really supportive. Um, although they, there wasn't the support network or structure that there is now, people were genuinely supportive, even, you know, or especially the core UK scene. It wasn't like we didn't feel they, they were into it. Um, we did also start to get some funding from UK Sports in the run-up to the 2002 Olympics. So both myself and Melanie had started to do reasonably well and we were both getting, you know, top five places in those fifth World Cups. We hadn't had any podiums, but we were regularly coming fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh in really quite strong fields. Yeah. And, and looking back at the amount of support we had, which was, was not so much, we had a guy called Adrian Frearson, who was a snowboard filmmaker, he came on tour with us as a manager and coach manager. He wasn't a, an experienced coach, but he was a great help. And just having a second pair of hands or third pair of hands to help us both out was, was awesome and a lot of fun as well. We'd, we definitely had a lot of fun um, in the Adrian years. And then before we knew it, Salt Lake Ol- Olympics was upon us and, and um, we were in the qualification for that. And again, um, Melanie was really unlucky. She got a, a fairly bad head injury at the Brits or the what must have been the Brit Games in Meyerhofen yeah I think it was which 2002 uh, it must have been 2001 2001 the year before obviously. and so that really scuppered her chances of of making it to Salt Lake um, I'm I made it to Salt Lake and um, yeah that was uh, my half pipe career in the Olympics kicked off so how many Olympics did you do? I did three Olympics. I did Salt Lake City, Turin and Vancouver. Neither were my finest moments as a competitor, I must say. But then You must be proud though. You must be proud when you look back now. And I mean, we can talk about that in a minute because it is one of the questions I want to ask you. But, you know, you got to three Olympics. I mean, that is like, by any measure, that is an incredible achievement. You must be proud when you look back at I, that. I'm, I'm definitely proud of it. I, is it the thing I'm most proud of? Probably not. But I'm definitely proud of it. I mean, are they as a competitor? Are they are they different? Is there more pressure? Oh, absolutely! It's a hundred percent different, and and it's in Salt Lake. It was more different because it was you know totally alien environment. The whole world's all of a sudden looking at you. I never had that before. And um, there's all all of a sudden all these expectations on your shoulders, and I had a huge sense of responsibility towards all the people that had helped me in my all my snow sport career to get to an Olympics, and all of a sudden I was there, and it was terrifying to have that sense of responsibility, and and um, also to have some my mo- motivation for snowboarding was always really to do great tricks and to you know let's let's have it let's shred. And that got taken away from me a little bit at Salt Lake, and that never been, I never had that happen to me before. And all of a sudden, I was there to do well, and it sat really uncomfortably with me, and I, I didn't have a positive effect on my say, performance so how, at all. How did how did you cope with that? I crashed twice, and and wanted to hide. I didn't want to be there. I wanted to run away and hide. I just didn't know what to do with this this um, perception that I should be there to win. 
I, I find it really hard to deal with and and couldn't contextualize it. We should hold that thought because that's obviously a theme in in the work that you do with GB Park and Pipe now. That that battle between the culture of snowboarding and and normal competitive culture, which is all about winning. So, what you must have, what are the highlights of those three, uh, you know, amazing achievements? Then, do you, what 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 do you remember most fondly from those Olympics? So, Salt Lake was a real coming of age of snowboarding, and the qualification process leading to Salt Lake had been such a journey. You know, we felt like a real snowboard family in the you know running up to two thousand and two. We'd had a great time and and really supported one another and just travelled the world together, young bu- bunch of snowboard athletes, you know, really finding our own. And then to, to be centre stage at an American Olympics with great American snowboarders. It was a good, well, it was a good was, snowboarding Olympics, that wasn't it? Yeah, it was amazing. The atmosphere was amazing. The riding was amazing. You know, everything from, from um, you know, Kelly Clark's, like, you know, it was really her her moment that she burst onto the the scene and and stamped her authority on on ladies halfpipe riding and is still going strong to this day. To you know, Hecky's mohawk, it was you know a, a real proud moment for snowboarding. I think. Um, What's it like in the village? So in Salt Lake, we actually didn't stay in the village. We stayed up in Park City, um, and I. Yeah, I, I think I maybe have regrets about that. I think I would have felt more part of the the genuine Olympic vibe if I'd stayed in the village because it actually it's cool to to be there with all the other sports and. I think that's one of the fascinating things for people watching the Olympics because obviously you, you know that there are athletes, you know that they're focused for the event, but you do wonder what goes on after the event. Uh, after the event, well. Each Olympics, I think, is very different because it depends on how the Olympic village is and if the villages are sometimes split up into different venues. So sometimes there's just a one massive village. Vancouver was a bit like that, although there were two areas. Um, whereas in Turin, the different events, there were four different Olympic villages. So to be honest, Turin felt a bit institutional. It felt like you were in a prison, <laughs> if right. I'm being honest. Right. It wasn't a particularly nice atmosphere in the Olympic Village although the athletes and especially the snowboarders we made it as fun as it could be Um, Vancouver was way better that was a lovely Olympic Village but I was at such different parts of my life in each Olympics that I have very different experiences from all of them and ultimately they were all positive although at the time each one was personally very challenging I I mean I'd like to ask you about that because you know, at various points throughout those Olympics, you you did receive a lot of criticism, and you did receive some pretty horrible trolling. Really, I mean, I remember seeing some really awful stuff online. You know, about the way you'd performed and stuff. I mean, how did you? I think, and I think for everybody in snowboarded that knew where you'd come from. I mean, we were pissed off about that. You know, so like, how did you cope with that? Yeah, the the whole trolling thing from Turin actually. I'm so glad it was, you know, that's a little bit before social media was was really in everyone's lives so, or it would have been a whole lot worse. Can't imagine how being trolled is these days. Um but yeah, there were still, you know, MySpace and and um enough out there that yeah, there were a few people who who basically 
took umbrage to the fact that I'd had lottery, UK sport lottery funding and had gone to the Olympics and crashed in both Olympics I'd been to and definitely weren't kind in the way that they were showing their umbrage. It was horrible to deal with that and especially because that sense of responsibility that I was having such a hard time reconciling with performance was the thing that had probably got to me yeah and that's <laughs> in why retrospect. I think that's why everyone in the scene was so protective of you as well because because everybody knew that everybody knew how 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 like important you knew that was and I think for us like well I said like as if I'm speaking for everybody but certainly for me I just felt like the actual performance bit was was just one part of such a huge story that I I don't know I just thought it was pretty pretty awful really I was I was very impressed with the way you handled that you seemed to outwardly it seemed like you didn't you know you just shrugged it off really I, I was really fortunate that I was a bit older and you know I'd been burnt once it was my second snow sport career you know I'd been really disappointed and let down by alpine skiing so I I'd got into snowboarding for the right reasons. I got into snowboarding because I loved snow sports, loved the mountains, loved the people, and and ultimately was was motivated to to progress and learn things on a snowboard. So the Olympics was just part of that picture for me. It wasn't the only thing. Um, obviously, that year was an important part of the picture, but it, because it wasn't the most important thing about snowboarding for me, I was able to get some sort of perspective you could and contextualize it and, um, and cope with it yeah go ride some powder yeah. <laughs> yeah well before we move on i've got one more question um you suffered a lot of injuries over your riding career and some of them were really nasty um this actually a question from our friend josie um because I, I i don't know if you saw in fact you did see because you shared it but i asked people on facebook for questions so I've got a few in, so I'm going to read a few of those out. It's from our friend Josie McNamara. So out of all your injuries, which was the hardest to recover from and was it worth it? Was it worth the effort to do so? That's, I, I, it's actually a really difficult question in terms of, of um, defining recovery. So you know, when you get hurt, you, you get physically hurt, but you it affects you mentally and emotionally as well. And you have different times to recover in each area so physically the hardest injury to recover from was my smashed ankle and that was that happened about in the April before the Turin Olympics so how did you do that what happened so I at the same time as riding halfpipe I'd been riding slope style I just come on the scene so I, I was riding slope style as well and I'd also um Josie and myself um and Shanley had set up a production company called Chunky Knit Productions and we were making all-girl snowboard films and um, there were, you know, Mischief were also doing the same thing at the same time but we, it was really pioneering because there there weren't the opportunities for for females in, in sn- snowboarding or in action sports, I'm guessing, at the time to really... Sh- you know, film and showcase Have the sports platform. from from their point of view. So we'd taken it upon ourselves to to provide that opportunity, and it was amazing, amazing experience. I'm so glad that we did it, but it was was also very time consuming. So I, I was I was a bit stretched, and at the oh. end of the season, I'd uh, I'll link to the films as well. Are they online? They must be online. They'll be online somewhere. The, yeah, they're they're 
You some of some of the bits are online. Two, right? Two films. Three, three, three of films. Them. Yeah. So I'll I'll, I'll link to that because that was, yeah. I mean, we could probably spend a long time talking about that, but because we we need to shift on a bit, I think really. But yeah, there there were, yeah, they were great projects, weren't they? They were amazing. So, and, and, so be, and Jen, you know, the riders that are in them when you look back now, you know, Jenny's in there, isn't she? Yeah, I, we had all the, Shereel, the top riders Shereel's all, in all there, the time. Shereel Mass, yeah, so like. Shirsty's in them right as well like so you know like it really was the the, the cream of of women's snowboarding great music as well that was Josie's department she was very good at sorting that out you know and one of the things I really loved about that project was it really conveyed the camaraderie of women's snowboarding which is something that I think is very evident I mean would you yeah. say that's true absolutely and at that time that's what it, that was what made us all tick that was so important it still is I'd say a little bit less so than it used to be but that was really what made us tick um, anyway I, I broke my ankle at a slope style event in Sweden um, very badly I basically smashed up the, the knobbly bone on the outside of my ankle and snapped the ligament that goes through that ankle as well as cracked my heel bone cracked the bone that's in the middle of your foot and made a right mess of everything um, to the point where they had to stick it back together with tissue glue <laughs> and grommets that they use for, for bullet wounds um, when bones have been really shattered and got told that pff, they had no idea if it was going to get better or not they'd done their best job and I just had to wait and see so obviously that's terrifying to hear that as an athlete but you know nine months before an Olympics that you'd you'd really been working really hard to get to and and you know identifying with a lot probably more so for the Tuna Olympics than I had for Salt Lake was not a psychologically pleasant position to be in and at the same time I was going through the breakup of a relationship that had been a, a long-term relationship and it it was just one more thing that that w- made that part of my life really really difficult to deal with um and so fortunately for me I had brilliant physio Alison Rob wouldn't be walking if it wasn't for her and some great friends back home I got, had a lot of recce got really or refound my love for alternative medicine and and meditation and crystals and all of those great things that do help you heal honestly um so kind of reconnected with myself okay um but it took it, it's still recovering yeah right really yeah. So still you still have that legacy so physically it's it's as good as it's probably gonna get it's probably only gonna get worse from now on in but it's recovered you know i can snowboard i can run on it but what, it's, what it doesn't work as well as it, it did before um nine that would have been 95 that I broke it. Oh, really? So you did no, no, sorry, 2005. So you did, two, you, you did, you did two Olympics with that? Yeah, with the broken right. ankle. So by the time I went to Turin, it was maybe 50% working. <laughs> wow, okay. Um, Didn't know that the trolls, did they? No, but you know. So I think it'd be great to move on to, to you know, Vancouver and then... You, was that the end of the riding career, really? By uh, by Vancouver, I was actually coaching. I was coach manager for the Roxy Snow Team, and I I was riding for fun in some competitions, and inadvertently met the qualification level. So I just thought, you know what? I am going to go to the Olympics to get a bit of perspective on the horrible experience I had at the last Olympics and try and come out of the other end with something really positive so I, I was lucky enough to go to an Olympics as a 
coach athlete and definitely I will, I'm emphasizing coach there so that I could look at the performance from that perspective not many people get to do that and I of course I gave it my all I'm not saying that I, I wasn't trying to get in the mix I was fortunate enough I was still at the level that I could could have made the semi-finals I no way I was gonna medal and um, I didn't I, I crashed but that's uh, that's just a you know bit of a theme and um, but came out of Vancouver with lots of really really positive impressions so you ended up after that if I'm right working for Roxy full-time right as, as team manager yeah I was actually or just after Vancouver started working full-time for Roxy um, so how long did you do that so I was um, for three years full-time for Roxy and and before Vancouver I was already working part-time for Roxy yeah um, and at the same time I'm as on the side if you like I was working with the um, Pat Sharples and Hamish McKnight in the background to try and set up the what became GB Park and Pipe. It wasn't GB Park and Pipe then. It was how do we organise a pathway in yeah, the UK to you, support you, the you athletes? You recognised there was a problem and you you started trying to address that problem. Yeah, and you were also studying. Yeah, I started studying in two thousand and eleven. So I applied to do a master's degree in performance coaching and at the same time I also studied um, a few modules in herbal medicine and I, I started to do both with the opinion that you know I'd see which way it went okay um, and just ended up really really enjoying the performance coaching master's degree I enjoyed the herbal medicine one too but an opportunity didn't open there I felt always tended just to if an opportunity comes up I'll walk through the door and if it's fun and I'm learning I keep going um, if herbal medicine had opened up an opportunity it, I probably would have been on a very different path okay that's interesting so that's the way you approach these crossroads in your life if you like you didn't you didn't really come at that with like okay I'm going to do this you just sort of followed a couple of different directions and you saw which which way yeah they developed that's interesting one of the things I do want to ask you about is is when you're at Roxy that whole controversy broke didn't it about was it who was the athlete remind me there was the film made wasn't there about um the Roxy athlete that was uh perceived to be really sexist um, so yeah, that was just at the end of it was more the surfers um, of my team managership, if you like, for the snow team. I was obviously working for Roxy Snow, um, and Quicksilver had launched Quicksilver Women um, in the years previous to that, and then they that went by the wayside and Steph Gilmore was their top athlete, and they wanted to put her back on Roxy, and they they tried so Quicksilver Women had been launched as a, a more grown up version of Roxy and it was marketed as a little bit more sexy if you like because it was older and so they tried to take the same or a similar sort of approach into back into Roxy when they crossed Steph back to Roxy and it completely backfired on them for obvious reasons <laughs> and what did you think about that because at the time it was a it got a lot of coverage, didn't it? And um, it really seemed to reveal a lot of kind of the entrenched attitudes on both sides of the, the line, really. You know, there was a lot of people like pretty much spinal tap, like what's wrong with sexy, wasn't there? You know, and then there was a lot of people saying it was like sexist. And as somebody that was kind of like not directly involved, but in, you know, 
what what did you think about all that you know i I wasn't at all surprised about any of it if if um if that sheds any light on the subject i think that that's that whole problem because it is a problem is continually bubbling under the surface of all action sports you know the the way that the female athletes are promoted and marketed um it's you know very often a little bit dodgy um and not wholesome is that wrong and for what reasons is it wrong then you know we could be here a long time discussing that but you know i think that it needs to be challenged the female athletes need to be recognized for what they are they're female athletes and i also agree with there's there's not a problem if they're sexy or if they want to portray their personality that way but that's not what's interesting or important about them so you had these two potential career paths you had the work you were doing with Hamish and and Pat and then you had um, the kind of alternative route if you like but you ended up going down the the GB Park and Pike route if you like route if you like so should we should we talk a little bit about that I mean we talked we we began with that you know you explained what your role was yeah um so you're working with Hamish and Pat now, basically. Yeah. So in, let me see, 2012, summer of 2012, I just finished my master's degree and got my degree and um, I got offered a full-time position as program manager of GB Park and Pipe. And a lot of my master's degree had been, or all of my master's degree, was about setting up effective learning environments for for snow sports, for park and pipe athletes. So for the skiers and snowboarders on the Roxy team I'd been coaching and for um, the British park and pipe riders through through discussions with Pat and Hamish and the little bit of work I started to do behind the scenes on the pathway. I was um, very involved in the coaching course material Sorry, it's just my phone. <laughs> At the time. So I, my, myself, Pat and Hamish had been working on the coaching course material as well as, as designing a pathway to apply for funding for okay. for Park and Pipe. So Funding from UK Sport. From UK Sport. So I guess the catalyst was that Slopestyle became an Olympic sport. Yeah. And um, UK Sport invested in Slopestyle off the back of James Woods and Jenny Jones having great results internationally and, and the other athletes involved as well. M- many of them had very good good results uh, and all of a sudden they needed a programme So there was an opportunity. There was an opportunity. That they recognised as well. So, yeah. they, so they saw that and they saw the athletes. Did they approach you or did you approach them? So it was actually Paddy Mortimer, who was the performance director at BSS at the time, who approached me and, and made me a full-time job offer. And so I talked to Pat and Hamish and, and said, well, you know, look, this could you know, this could be something really quite special. Um, as I say, we'd already been spending all of our spare time um, working on it behind the scenes and it was it was like a natural progression Pretty, again. Um, pretty smart move then pretty ahead of the curve what did you explain where that came from then was that just something you thought was 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 on the horizon and you thought you better be ready or was it just something no it was actually something very that came very much from my master's degree so I started my master's degree um 
was all about look or I, I was studying myself coaching and at the time I was coaching Amy Fuller and Katie Ormerod who were also part of the British team as well so um, we were in the same place you always are on Park and Pipe you know in, in um, December you're in Colorado and whatever so Hamish and Pat were always around and so I, w I was always talking to them about how th how they set up the coaching environment it's a very much setting up the coaching environment the technical coaching parts we talked about for hours and hours and hours over the years due to the coaching course material we'd worked on together and so because there's there's very much two important parts to coaching and one doesn't work without the other so there's the technical coaching all about the you know the techniques and the tactics of of doing the tricks and then there's the coaching environment and the communications part so it was really the environment and communications part that I I got really into I'd studied the other part it was included but um, you know I was well I mean it that the, the learning tricks and the progression and the and the ability side, if you like, is is obviously something that every high level sport has in common, and presumably coaching techniques. Um, obviously, they're different, but you know, there's the, there's a common foundation. But the other thing that you're talking about, the communication, the environment for for action sports, is is obviously completely different from yeah. traditional sports, and seems to me that's where you've put it, you Hamish and Pat, so the Hamish McKnight and Pat Sharples have been particularly visionary because I think bridging that gap between what the athletes need from a snowboarding context and what the you know how you then communicate that to, to a lot of different stakeholders for want of a better term whether that's UK sport that's not easy that's yeah. not easy to, to communicate that and that seems to me to be where GB Park and Pipe and the the framework that you guys have put in place has really succeeded yeah and I think you're absolutely right and there's no way I would have been able to communicate that effectively or and effectively in terms of the communication externally but also internally to the athletes themselves without the vocabulary and the knowledge that I got from them studying the master's degree so when I started to study I all of a sudden realized that there's this massive body of great knowledge this academic knowledge that people have put together the, and have a whole vocabulary connected to it that links into other areas of academia, you know, like philosophy, sociology, um, motivational science, psychology, all of these ologies that validated my experiences as an athlete and a coach. And that was very empowering. Yeah, and that's a theme that's come out through this conversation, isn't it? You know, at, at different points in your career, skiing, you know, snowboarding yeah. obviously you've been taking notes if you like to, yeah. to lead you to this point right yeah and so I could all of a sudden restructure all my knowledge and experience um on a uh evidenced yeah. framework in, in, a, a in, in a way that suddenly a body like vocabulary you, that you, somebody like UK sport are going to understand exactly so yeah. I could explain why tricks or they call it in UK sport language it's task mastery why that's a more effective and important approach to go for when you're you're setting up a learning program in action sports than than a traditional win at all all costs approach I all of a sudden had the the 
um, the vocabulary, but also the knowledge and the evidenced knowledge through my own studying to back up what I'd been saying all along just from my anecdotal experience. Was it difficult to communicate that at points? And I mean to both sides, if you take like, you know, athletes or snowboard community on one side or and then like, you know, traditional sporting bodies on the other side, was it? Yeah, you know, so the the funny thing here is that in order to communicate it, I have to set up a learning environment for for the different stakeholders, for them to learn it in their own way. So it's something I don't think people get until who, who they understand. You, who would you say those stakeholders are? I hate the word, but we're going to use it anyway. <laughs> who, who would you say those are then? So the way I, I kind of think about it, and this is, it definitely comes from having to explain it to, you know, UK sport and the likes. You've got your external stakeholders, um, so people like British Ski and Snowboard, UK Sport, the um, mainstream snow sports fans, and then the core snow sports fans, the industry people, and then general public. Right. And then you have your internal stakeholders. Yeah. And, you know, to me, the, those ones are more important. The athletes, so the skiers and snowboarders, they're the most important people in my picture. Well, without them buying in, call it all off, right? Yeah. And and has that, how's that been? Um, so far, so good. And it 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 was a big experiment, you know, to first of all to try and write write down and explain what I was actually seeing. Um, first of all, to explain it to Pat and Hamish and to have their feedback and to reach a consensus that it was you know we were all on the same page. That took a while, and then to write that down and and be able to justify it concisely. That was the next step, and then to put put those thoughts into an operational plan so that we could actually affect outcomes that we wanted was a massive step and that operational plans it's very very holistic i think what do, you, the, what, what do you mean by that so the the whole is bigger than the sum of the individual parts so it, it's a living entity in itself, if you like. It creates its own culture, its own values. Are, are, um, they have a bit of their own spirit. It's a, it's a very metaphysical way of looking at, at um, a performance programme, I guess. And again, that's, that's maybe taking me right back to my, my hippie roots. I'm not sure how much that kind of thinking was there. How does that the go start. down at the, uh, at the UK sport meetings? Um actually because we've explained it in a very rational and thorough way it goes down very very well right because the other question i've got is and and this is something that i have kind of seen you struggle with at times or or have to deal with struggles probably the wrong word but how do you reconcile the, the achieving culture of snowboarding which isn't based upon personal bests it isn't based upon like hitting times it isn't based upon those measures of success. It's me- snowboarding. We don't we don't treat progression in that way. We treat it completely differently. We you know it it's about creating an environment to learn new tricks. It's about and that's a very different thing from like I'm going to train to the point that I can beat a certain time in the hundred meters. So how have you how have you managed to negotiate that ground when it comes to sort of demonstrating progress to UK sport? Do you know what I mean? So obviously you have to account to those people. And you have to say, yeah, we are making progress. But I guess if you can't show them a list of times or distances, 
it's not immediately obvious. So how have you gone about explaining that part of snowboarding culture? So it's, it's a little bit twofold. So first of all, we've been very purposeful in the coaching philosophy that we're using and why we're using it. So there, there's a, a certain um, academic body of research that comes from motivational science um, uh, and it comes from a theory called self-determination theory but it's used, been used and studied a lot in sport and the general consensus of this theory is that if you support people and the basic needs of people to in a certain way they're more likely to reach their goals and be successful and from this this um, way of thinking um, it's very prominent in sports performance coaching performance sports coaching at the moment that a task mastery approach to learning is going to be the best way to to help people reach their goals when they're trying to learn things and and in sport you're trying to progress and learn and that means that you don't focus on the outcome the winning you focus on the task that you're doing it's very related to mindfulness for example and it's relevant probably to all walks of life common sense actually but we use that body of knowledge from a philosophical standpoint to clearly identify values and a coaching philosophy so we're all we, we can always go back to that we're being consistent in our messaging and we we can if we need more information we just draw from the body of knowledge to explain um, coupled with that we're we're just very practical about the learning process in snow sports so to learn tricks you have to chain them on one after the other and to know where you're at you need to to document that you need to t keep a track of what tricks you can do so that you know which one it makes sense to add next and all snowboarders and and free skiers do that anyway that's how you you learn you're like oh i want to learn 180 now i'll learn a 360 and then i'll learn a 540 and at the same time you try and do it the other way it's just a really more organized version of that so we have a trick profiling system that we were using to teach the athletes and to help them set goals and we just chose to put that forward as our profiling tool to justify the spend and what that meant is we had to be able to time or put a time scale on the learning process so that we could say this is how to hold us to account we had to do that and we also had to tie tra tie the trick profiling to the best performance results happening in the world and as soon as we made those ties so this is what the best competitive run of the season looks like in terms of tricks and the, this is where our athletes profile against that run we we were able to have a system that that more accurately reflected what was actually going on and a sporting culture that's kind of used to terms such as like marginal gains and and those things sort of bought into that yeah so luckily for us at the same time we got some of the the sometime from the statisticians at UK Sport and they put together a great piece of work um, on head-to-head -head rankings and that piece of work actually backed up what we were saying in terms of the predictions we were giving for progression over time and the likelihood of athletes landing tricks and contests when they were at a certain point of the learning process and statistically that actually started to prove what we were saying which was actually really reassuring for us as you can imagine i'm sure yeah and um, so that's where we're at with that and it's developing and evolving all the time but it's really exciting actually to be part of that 
I've got another question that somebody uh, sent in actually about about not that specifically, but um, this is from David Blackwell. So how does how does funding currently work? Can you break it down? And what do you think the most successful investment has been? Okay, so the UK sport funding is based on the number of successful athletes you have at world at proven world class level, who you can prove are likely to go on and medal in an Olympics and you have to prove all of that so there needs to be evidence based and it needs to be backed up by a time phased approach that you can prove it is likely at least to work um, and then you also have to have a performance plan an eight year performance plan that that proves sustainability over time so there's a lot of work that goes into the funding application so you we have to that's what that business case is you put together a business case that actually is a forecast on developing performing athletes and they're they're improving their chance of success at, at medal level so can you answer like what the the most successful investment has been is that something that, that does it it sounds like it doesn't really work like that so in 20 so the last funding cycle between sochi and now we were awarded about f- just over four million pounds over the four years to gb park and pipe to gb park and pipe so that money a lot of it goes to bss in the form of running the office so that there's all the back of house things the governance side the administration yep. all those things have to be covered yeah and then there's the program costs and that's um everything from the coaches salaries to their expenses to buying time on performance camps, lift passes, all of that thing, you know, travelling around the world competing and parking yeah, pipes, not cheap. Snowboarding's not cheap. Um, no, we no try skiing. and subsidise the costs for the athletes as much as we can with any of the leftover money. So that that's how the, the money's spent. What's the most effective spend? That is, you know, it, all of it, we hope, is going in the right direction. As I've said before, we take a really holistic approach to this. So the most effective strategy we've had is to have a holistic approach. And presumably this is um, like the, the work you've been doing on the, the content, the films, the project PY 2018 stuff, also comes from the same part. And what was the thinking behind that? Because that, that's kind of unique in, in the, the kind of national team world, if you like, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. So the special business case that we did. So you, within the UK sport funding application, you're allowed to identify a special area that you, is particular to your sport. And it might be a facility. It might be working with a certain time of type of physiologist or coach or or something so what we identified was a need for a communications and partnerships project to build internal buy-in predominantly you mean with the athletes with the athletes what does Um, that look like making them feel like they're proper snowboarders basically because they get film parts made about them making them feel like they're proper snowboarders proper free skiers but that they're proud to be part of the GB Park and Pipe, that that we're credible, that we represent them well, that we can get their back on the world stage and support them to be the skiers and snowboarders that they want to be. And quite h- historically, a lot of national teams 
didn't have any of those things. And I was very aware that those things are so powerful. So historically, brands like Roxy um, had that and didn't have some of the other important things you need as an athlete. Um, add, in the, add them both together. If we could have everything, then we were going to have the best chance of being able to help these athletes. But if we didn't have the athlete buy-in, no matter how much money or resources we were able to give them, we weren't going to be able to help them as as well as we could. Do any of the sports under the U- UK sport kind of ages like do they do that? So I think they're starting to take well interestingly they're starting to look at what we're doing but they're starting to realize that if you can't build an effective collaboration as a national team with your athlete then you're not going to be sustainable. You might be successful but it won't be sustained success. Um, And I think that's really interesting. Well, we we approached it from the other way around because we we weren't going to get, we weren't even going to have any success without the buy-in of the athletes. They had other options. So we had to, to put sustainability, if you like, before success, but both actually came are are growing together and it's still a process it's very much a process in addition to that internal buy-in we wanted to educate people inspire people bring in more people to um, either um, watch or listen to or be part of park and pipe or participate in park and pipe but also have um, something we could barter with for in exchange for opportunities so for access to parks or for special builds for the riders and skiers to train on or just as an exchange you know give us a cheap deal and accommodation and we'll give you some media coverage so the standard model that works really really well already in action sports that's the action sports model right there isn't it we needed it we needed it as a brand as a national team um and the athletes needed it to support their career. So th- there were three different aspects to that communications and partnerships project. And UK Sport bought it, obviously. They they, they didn't really get it at first. Right. They were a little I'm bit sure. sceptical. That, that must be quite a quite a tough sell. Yeah, it was it was a very hard sell. But they they were brave enough, and this is full credit to to John Wood at UK Sport. They were brave enough to to. Uh, first of all let us explain it as best we could then listen to us and then you know let us give it a shot although we had to be held to account for it and it worked exactly how we explained it would work and it's going from strength to strength so you're feeling positive about the olympics <laughs> so um, I know you can't. I, <laughs> how I'm do not, I answer I, that? I'm one? not. I'm not. Gonna, I'm not going to ask you to say. I'm not going to ask you to say like who's your favourite rider or who do you think who do you think is going to win a medal. I'm obviously not going to ask you to say that because I know that you can't in your position. But do you, I mean, from the outside looking in, it looks like the team are killing it at the minute. You know, yeah. there's a. You look at all the riders. There's progression across the whole team. You know, there's there's really obvious strong medal prospects. Whether it's like James Woods or Katie or Maraud Billy on his day, you know, there's some of the skiers are smashing it. Like Isabel Aitken is like doing amazingly well. Yeah. So there must be a mood of positivity, right, about how it's going to go next year. You know, on paper, it, honestly, it couldn't look better. You know, we've we've got two world championships medals, a couple of X Games medals, countless fourteen podiums. I think we got this last season. It's all it's amazing that the athletes are just killing it. They're doing such a good job. It, it, when you've been in. When you've got the long view UK snowboarding, it's it's 
it's actually hilarious to, to see how far the athletes have come, isn't it? At least said this one in interviewed him for the podcast about Ron Coulter and the Aaron Style, you know, being in the final and how like actually laughable that is because it was such a big deal when we even had somebody in the qualifiers like back in the day. Yeah, you know, so, it's, so it's it's amazing, really. It's amazing. I. I'm more I'm going on the fact that we had a long hard arduous season in terms of the whole Olympic qualification the schedule was so back to back for the athletes every weekend they were competing traveling to the next event competing it was a real grind for them they you know they just finished the season a couple of weeks ago and they're all on great form and they're all happy they're all stoked they're all loving learning new tricks they're all excited and motivated and that's what makes me motivated and excited so going on that alone yeah you know bring on the olympics on the flip side of all this positivity about gb park and pike there is a, there is definitely a school of thought among the snowboarding industry that this is all not real snowboarding you know that this is like actually just a bit of a waste of time and that no one really cares about it i've actually i mean i've definitely heard people say those exact words like you know no one cares about gb park and pipe it's not real snowboarding you know this idea that because it's competitive it doesn't really count how do you feel about that i i can actually you know i can see their their standpoint um however if you break it down to you know base elements, you know what what is skiing and snowboarding to to everybody? What what is it that can tie everyone together? And it's that feeling of being stoked. It's that feeling of going out there with your mates, challenging yourself in an absolutely amazing environment, and walking away with a big smile on your face. And that's what those our guys do, the Park GB Park and Pipe guys do, day in day out. So you know they're. They're definitely relevant. Well, I think we're at an hour and a half. We could, I mean, I've got, I've still got loads of questions, but I think we probably should start bringing it to a bit of a close. Um, I think it'd be good to bring it full circle, really, and, and bring it back to you, you personally, um, if, if you're happy with that. So, you still live in Aviemore. Still, still live got, in Aviemore. You've still got roots there. You're about to build a house there. Yep. Can you tell me a bit about that? Because that's an interesting project, isn't it? So I've I've ended up full circle back in Aviemore, you know, for for a lot of nearly, you know, twenty odd years, or at least yeah, twenty odd years I wasn't in Aviemore, uh, really as a full time home. But I'm very happy to be back there, and lucky enough to be about to embark on on building a house in Aviemore, and that's a long term project. It's with three other local couples and Rothy Mercus Estate as a uh, partner if you like we set up a cooperative to basically find a new model to build houses that local people could afford to buy you know Aviemore is a really desirable place in terms of of house buying which means the prices are are astronomical compared to what local people can afford to buy it's in the national park and that's just added to the the house price situation um, there's very little funding available for for new house building. It's you know the same problems exist all over the UK. So um, seven years ago we we came up with this idea to partner with the the landowner and Highland Small Communities Trust. We set up a cooperative. It's to build sustainable, ecologically friendly, affordable houses. 
So these are, are not social housing. We, we're all we're self-funding these houses, but they need to be affordable for local people to buy and for, you know, in perpetuity, they, you know, where they'll always be in that housing pool for local people. It's very exciting. Yeah, it is. One of the things that's really coming across here is like how how driven you are really i mean even that you know you've just sort of casually explained that but that is that is like a that's not just building a house is it you know that's like and i'm assuming from what you've said that that's been a long process to get to this point presumably with a lot of red tape and a lot of you know a lot of different challenges to overcome again i think it's a little bit about making your own opportunities so i i always dreamed about building my own house and I'm really into doing something that's sustainable in all the different ways you can be sustainable and the right thing for the future for it so that other people can potentially benefit from it as well. There's no way I, I could have ever afforded to buy on the open market a plot of land and build a big house. So it, out of necessity, you have to find a way to do it. So f- we basically found a way to do it. Yeah. But with all, with I guess what I'm driving at, and it's another question from from uh, Josie McNamara. Actually, she says sometimes it feels like you're on some kind of high level mission. <laughs> what are you actually trying to achieve? And I, and and I, I've kind of you know I I can see where she's coming from, and that's what I meant when I said, you know, looking back over your career, it's it's constant forward movement, it's constant progression, it's constant like wanting to find the opportunities. You know, so yeah. where does that come from? I want to say, what what do I want to achieve? Answers. (laughs) That's the the word that comes up. I guess a challenge comes up and and it catches my eye, if you like. I think, oh, I'd really like to do that. And that's like when the door opens, I step through the door and then I just keep going as long as I'm still finding the answers. Um, And I guess it does become a bit of a mission, (laughs) to be fair. Yeah. If you had to do something that wasn't related to to snow sports, because you've you know as we've heard you've spent your entire career involved in snow sports, what what would you do? Oh, good question. Um, I always imagined that my my alternative would be something to do in with alternative medicine or. Um, I'm really I, I'm I'm interested in all sorts of wacky things. Would I make a or try to make them into a career? I'm 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 not sure. It's so difficult for me to answer that question because until the opportunity arises, I'm so busy, you know, finding the answers to the questions that I've got at the moment. They're in front of you right then. No, I can I can see that. One of the questions that came in on Facebook was about um Cairngorm actually you know we've heard this is from Scott Hosey on Facebook and we've you, you know we've heard of like how associated with Cairngorm your family is and that 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 resorts in a bit of a funny place right now you know like do you think that do you think there's a case to be made there for um community ownership of or management of that of that place um so this is something I'd actually like to find out a little bit more about but um Hypothetically speaking, if if um, there you know people could put together a good case for that and 
and really collaborate and truly work together because it would take a lot of collaboration and working together and that wouldn't just be that the company the community buyout company it'd have to be the the whole of the area would have to be on side with this i think it'd be amazing that is it is it likely could that happen knowing what you know about the community of course it's likely but it definitely take a lot of effort and a lot of um bravery i'm gonna say bravery people would have to to believe that it was possible uh and be prepared to stick it out okay so i've got i'm gonna finish up with the uh actually i, I kind of forget sometimes so i ask these questions but i've got a few that i always ask yeah. people so um what do you think your big, biggest success is Honestly, that's such a difficult question to answer. Becoming a mother and, you know, staying sane um, <laughs> as a mother, as a working mother. Yeah, I can see that being <laughs> up there. Um, biggest failure? Biggest failure? Um, maybe being a little bit too getting a bit too much on a mission and not spending enough time with my friends and my family I'd love to have more time or maybe be less on a mission to to have a little bit more time to spend with the people that I care about kind of common thing in driven people I think that though isn't it really um, and then the classic looking sideways podcast interview if you had one day left to go snowboarding where would you go Do you any, get do anywhere? You get, do you get to pick the snow conditions? Yeah, you can have any any conditions in it, anywhere in the world. I would go up Breirich on a perfect Scottish powder day with you guys that I all, that I've spent seasons with who have never been there before. Shocking uh, that I've never been there. And it would be awesome. Works for me. Um, and if you had one last trick, what would it be? Backside ear in the half pipe. Nice. Massive. Nice. Oh yeah, because you um, didn't you just win the Brits again? <laughs> no, nobody does half pipe these days, Matt. <laughs> does he still counts? British champion. I, thought, I can't believe I didn't, nearly didn't even mention that. <laughs> Reigning British half pipe champion. Amazing. Uh, well, Leslie, that's been absolutely fascinating i've really enjoyed it so thanks for coming to uh to visit me down here in brighton and um for getting on the podcast thanks very much thanks for having me so there you go that was my interview with leslie mckenna and what a very very impressive woman leslie is as i think you'll all agree after listening to that i've been lucky enough to work with leslie at close quarters over the years and i really do believe she's a visionary and an unsung heroine who has done as much for women's and uk snowboarding as anybody out there Above all, throughout her career, she's managed what is an impossibly difficult trick, straddling the worlds between the classic sporting establishment, represented by bodies such as UK Sport, and the culture of snowboarding, and doing it in a way that earns the respect of both sides. Today, as programme manager of GB Park and Pipe, she's essentially a gatekeeper of wider snowboarding culture, and she takes that role, as you probably heard, very, very seriously. It isn't enough for Leslie that her athletes have success. It has to happen in a way that's truthful to the culture of snowboarding and action sports and that builds upon the sometimes bad experiences that she had during her own athlete career. And I personally don't think anyone else could have achieved what she's done and done it in the same way. So hats off to you, Leslie.
and thank you for coming on the Looking Sideways podcast. So there we go, that was episode nine. If you enjoyed it, please leave me a review on iTunes or a rating. Share it on social media if you're so inclined or tell your friends to check it out. It all helps and it will all, as I keep saying, every episode help me make more of these. If you really want to get involved, you could sign up to the Looking Sideways newsletter, which you can do over at my website, www.wearelookingsideways.com. I must admit, I'm a little suspicious of the number of people who appear to be signing up for the newsletter. It really is quite a large number every day, so much so that I've begun to wonder if I'm the victim of some fiendish spamming operation that I'm not too sure I understand. Or maybe people just dig it and want to get involved. Either way, keep them coming. If you sign up, you'll get exclusive episode-related content, such as the exclusive playlist Christian Stevenson made to accompany the last episode, as well as links to things that contextualise a lot of what we talk about in the conversation. I usually send them out a day or so after the episode drops, and it means I also get to indulge in the oddly fascinating exercise of watching who's opening it where, Bahrain, Thailand and Patagonia, last one, and also which mates of mine are unsubscribing. People, some of you've truly cut me deep there. So there we go. Next week, I've got skateboarder Pete Helicart on what an enthralling conversation this was. I met Pete and Lewis. We've known each other on and off for a few years now. And we talked about doing this from the time I started the podcast. Um, we finally got it together and it was really worth waiting for. Life, music, art, design from one of the UK scene's truly original thinkers. Don't miss that one. It's a real cracker. So until the next time, see you later. Goodbye. Goodbye.